19, going through verse 28. Genesis 25, 19 through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now I'm going to turn to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll just uh, read the entirety of the chapter so that we hear all of it once again. Romans 9, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But, but that Israel, who pursued a law that, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we come again this week to such weighty subjects. God, we come to uh, teachings and, and doctrines that we can scarcely comprehend. God, we come to a teaching in your word that doesn't, in general, align with the way that we may have always thought about the world and maybe even the way we have thought about you and about salvation. So God, I ask that you would give us your grace this morning. Once again, a grace that, that opens our minds to truth, that opens our hearts to accept and live by that truth, and give us hearts of unity. That even if we disagree on these uh, doctrines or the interpretation of your word, that we can still love one another as you have commanded and as you gave your Son, to give us that unity. Father God, I pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen. So we come this morning uh, to our study of Genesis, sort of. Um, we, we started in Genesis a, a few weeks ago, uh, there in Genesis 25, looking at uh, this, this birth of Jacob and Esau. But that led us now to, to, to Romans chapter 9. And that's because in Romans chapter 9, as you may be noticed, uh, Paul quotes explicitly Genesis chapter 25. And so what we're seeing here, again, it may be no surprise to you if you've been here the past couple weeks, what we're seeing here is, I believe, is the doctrine of election. That, that Jacob did not deserve uh, being having this blessing from God, having this salvation from God any more than Esau did his brother. And so that's what we looked at mainly the first week, was that, that Jacob was really a terrible candidate. If you just read Genesis alone, he is a terrible candidate uh, for God's blessing to be received by him. This blessing that had been given to Abraham, this promise that had been given to Abraham, now Jacob is the one who is going to receive it. But we, we saw from Jacob's uh, life that he really is a foolish, deceitful, and faithless man for the majority of his life. Then we saw that week, that first week, explicitly from Romans that, that yes, it was indeed uh, not because of anything in Jacob. It, wasn't, it was not because of anything Jacob had done or would do, but it had to do with God's choice. It said, in order that God's purpose of election may continue, not because of uh, works, but because of him who calls. That's why it was said to, to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger. So we, we saw that the first week, that there's this, this choosing that took place that was based on no merit in Jacob. In the last week of this study, uh, we saw from Romans uh, 1 through 5, because we're wanting to get the context of, of this uh, quoting of Genesis, uh, we saw from Romans 1 through 5 that the reason 
Jacob uh, needed to be chosen by God was because he suffered from the very same malady as the rest of mankind. He had a sin-sick heart. He had a love affair with darkness. He, along with everyone else, was born a sinner and then willfully chose to continue in sin. And so uh, we, we saw over and over uh, from God's Word a bunch of texts. But just, you know, think of Romans 3 was one of my favorites. It said there, no one understands. No one seeks for God. We've all turned our own way. No one understands this path. No one even seeks for God because of our sinful hearts. We would rather be shielded from him. But we saw that God in his grace looks down upon foolish, sinful, rebellious people like Jacob, like you and me, and he chooses them to receive his covenant blessings. And that's, that's true for you. If, if you've trusted Jesus from the heart today, you can know that God has reached down into your heart and made you a person who understands and made you a person who seeks for him. Then what we will look at this week is kind of maybe a twist, uh, but what I want to show you this week is that Romans chapter 9 is not mainly about election. It's not mainly about this doctrine of election, that, that God chooses people uh, based on nothing in them. God chooses them before the foundation of the earth. You know, we've been talking about that, but I don't believe that's actually the main reason uh, Romans 9 was written. Rather, I believe that this doctrine of election is meant to support uh, another doctrine that's given in Romans chapter 9. Does that make sense? There, election is actually a tool. This doctrine of election is actually a tool that uh, Paul is going to use to prove something else. It's kind of interesting if you think about that, that he's simply using this doctrine of election uh, to prove another doctrine. He's assuming his readers know and understand election. If he's going to use it as proof you know, to, to prove another doctrine, then he, he believes they already understand it. And I would even go so far as to say, if the doctrine of election is not a reality, if that's not what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 9, then his argument actually makes no sense. It, it, it would just be a, a bunch of, of jumbled words coming out, because that's the whole idea, is because of election, this other uh, doctrine is true. So that's what I want to show you today. So you might be wondering, what is this other doctrine? What is, what is it that Paul is trying to prove in Romans chapter 9? And, you know, how does that apply to us today? Well, I believe the key thesis, the, 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 the main point of Romans 9 is found at the beginning of verse 6. Look with me there if you would. And I'd love for you to be following along in your Bible with me. We will be all over the place. Tear off some pieces of paper and make bookmarks for your Bible because um, we, we have to see what God says about this. It's, it's foundational stuff. This may not be the most exciting stuff, by the way. I'm aware of that as a pastor. I'm keenly aware because I want to grab your attention. I want to be exciting. But sometimes things are just foundational. You know, I was talking with my wife and I said, we're, we're not looking at the beautiful brick on the building. Right now we're looking at pouring the concrete underneath. The not, not as pretty stuff, but it's the foundation for all the other beautiful doctrines in God's word. So, sorry, that was an aside. What is the main point? What is Paul trying to prove? Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. I think that's Paul's thesis statement right there. That's his main point. And what that means is uh, everything that he had just said in verses 1 through 5 uh, were preparing his readers for, for hearing that statement. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the reason he has that word but there at the beginning. You see that? But. Even though I say these things, but the word of God has not failed. And what that means as well is that everything he says continuing on out here in Romans 9 is proving that point that the word of God has not failed. And what we will see today is, and it will be very clear, 
what we'll see today is that Paul actually uses the reality of the doctrine of election to prove that the word of God has not failed. Okay, he's going to, to prove that the word of God has not failed, the promises of God, that's, that's what that means, the word of God, this specific promise of God has not failed. And he's going to prove that by the doctrine of election. So if you have your bulletin and you're following along doing notes, number one there is election upholds the promise of God. And that's singular, okay? Promise, singular promise. We're going to be looking at a particular promise uh, that's in question, or we'll be considering a particular promise that's in question here. Election upholds the promise of God. What we first need to do is see what the problem is. Why does Paul have to say, but it is not as though the word of God has failed? Why does he have to say that? So we need to look at Romans 9, 1 through 5 again real quickly. So go back up there. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So I'll just kind of tell you what Paul's saying here is he, he, he's grieving. He's grieving this lostness of his, his brothers, uh, his kinsmen in the flesh. That is the Israelites. He's grieving their lostness. Because for the large part, the large majority of the Israelites, of individual Israelites, were not trusting in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They weren't trusting in the Messiah. And so what we have here is Paul knows that, that a question is going to come up in his mind. Because he just said there, to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Right? These things belong to them. So if that's true, then why aren't most of them receiving this covenant blessing? Why aren't they uh, you know, receiving the benefits of this promise that God had made to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob? Again, that's, that's why Paul's grieving, is that they're not receiving this covenant promise, the blessings of this covenant promise. If God, in, in, Ro, uh, not Romans, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, had told Abraham that he's going to make a great nation through him, right? He said that he would bless him, that he'd bless his offspring, and that the height of that blessing would be salvation through a Messiah that would come through Abraham's line. Now, it doesn't say the word Messiah in Genesis 12. You have to, you have to look at it. Um, it says, um, through you, all the nations, or all the families, rather, will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. But we understand later in, in Genesis that, <laughs> that Abraham, sorry, my, all these names, that Abraham sees that and understands that that is salvation. He believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. So if all those promises had been, been given to Abraham and his offspring, then why, for the large part, are the Israelites not trusting in Jesus, the Messiah? Why aren't they trusting in the one by whom they can receive the benefits of this covenant promise, this salvation? Now, as we saw last week, no one... No one, right? No one would be saved without a special, specific work of God in the heart of an individual because of their sin. We said that. No one seeks for God. No one understands. But if God made this promise to, to, to Abraham and to his offspring, wouldn't that make God obligated to change the, the sinful heart and give salvation to someone born an ethnic Israelite. Wouldn't that make God 
obligated to do that. Wouldn't it just be that you're born an Israelite, therefore you're a recipient of the, the, this covenant blessing, of this salvation? Indeed, many felt this way in Paul's day. This, is, this was a common belief. Let me just show you this. It's actually interesting. The guy who wrote Romans chapter 9 believed this at one point. Uh, if you want to turn with me, you're welcome to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, kind of in the middle of verse 4, picking up. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what he's saying is if anyone uh, has an obligation on God, you know, if anyone's able to twist God's arm to, to, to have this salvation, it was me. Then he goes on to say this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Do you hear that? Whatever gain I had. What that means is, Paul saw all those things, the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's, that's the Abrahamic covenant given in uh, Genesis 17. Of the people of Israel. That's what we're talking about. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That would be one of the sons of Jacob. Um, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he's even keeping this, that he's a good Israelite, is kind of what he's saying here. He's, I'm not just a, an Israelite, I'm a super Israelite. I, I keep this law that God has given uh, and he goes on there and he says, but whatever gain I had, that I believed I had, right? I, I believed I had God in the corner, that, that he had to save me. He was obligated because of my, my birth and then living so well as an Israelite. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It was only after Jesus appeared to him and revealed the truth to him that he understood Okay, just being born as an Israelite and living as a good Israelite counted for nothing, nothing towards salvation. In fact, he says it was working against me. I counted it as loss. This was a negative thing for me to have all this, uh, you know, birthright and uh, achievement if I'm going to put my trust in those things. It was a negative thing. But that was the common thought of the day. I mean, this is the reason Jesus was crucified, was because of things like this. this is because this is what they believed. I'm an Israelite, therefore God is obligated to save me. Even if that means changing the heart, well, God's obligated to do it because I'm an Israelite. So that's our problem. God made this covenant promise of salvation directly to Abraham, and it was concerning his offspring... Yet so many Israelites, that is the descendants of Abraham, were not receiving salvation because they were rejecting the Messiah. Let me tell you, this would have been a huge theological problem for uh, the Jews of that day, for the Israelites of that day. This would have been a huge theological problem because the, the current thought was, I'm an Israelite, therefore I'm a, a recipient of the covenant blessings, a full recipient including salvation. So if God's not saving them, then that means God must be failing to keep his word. So what's Paul's answer to this supposed problem? Look in Romans 9, 6. If you can go back there if you had turned with me. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then here he goes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And we'll pause there. What did we just see? What, what's Paul doing? How, how, how is Paul beginning to argue that God's word and God's promise has not failed? Well, to kind of put it in a nutshell here, and then I'll go on to explain a little more, Paul is basically saying that the promise given to Abraham was not for every single ethnic Israelite or for every single biological offspring of Abraham. So he's making a distinction here 
between physical Israelites and the spiritual Israelites. You see that in uh, the second half of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Like, what does that even mean? I'm, I'm born an Israelite, but I'm not an Israelite. He's saying, well, there's a difference between physical, ethnic Israelite and a spiritual Israelite. And similarly, Paul makes this distinction between the biological offspring of Abraham and the spiritual offspring of Abraham. He says in the second half of, or no, the first half of verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. Again, you're not necessarily, necessarily his child just because you're his child. That's what he's saying there, you know. But you have to understand the difference here is there's the biological offspring, but then there's the spiritual offspring, the spiritual child. And so Paul is making this distinction here. He's saying it's not, not every single Israelite, every single descendant that even was to receive the full benefits of this uh, promise that God gave. There's the, the physical Israelite and the spiritual Israelite. There's the chosen nation of Israel, but within that nation, there were people individually chosen to receive the full benefits of the promise. Not all of them received the promise. Now, we need to remember here, because this is just so important, how many of the Israelites deserve God's salvation? How many people on planet Earth have ever deserved God's salvation? I'll actually tell you one. His name is Jesus Christ. Anyways, um, he got wrath instead. But they did not deserve this. And what we see here is God still graciously choosing and saving some. And that is the doctrine of election. Well, how do I know uh, that, that the doctrine of election is what makes the difference here between the, the physical Israelite and the spiritual Israelite, the physical descendant of Abraham and the spiritual descendant of Abraham? This is important, right? How do I know there's this difference? Well, as evidence for, for what he just said there, making that distinction, Paul is going to give two examples from Genesis, of God choosing spiritual offspring that would receive the benefits while the other offspring would not. He's going to give two examples, prime examples, of, of God choosing spiritual offspring that would receive these, these benefits, undeservedly would receive these benefits while the other offspring would not. Let's look at the two examples Paul gives us in verses 7 through 9. This is the first one, verses 7 through 9. And this is the example of Isaac and not Ishmael. The example of Isaac and not Ishmael. So this is Romans 9, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> Paul says, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But, then he quotes Genesis, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God, God said that to Abraham. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's another quote from Genesis. So we have two quotes from Genesis here, both of them concerning whether it would be Isaac or Ishmael that received this promise, or even both that received this covenant promise and the benefits of it. So think about it with me. We'll, we'll just break this down. We need to get the main point. The promise was given to Abraham, right? Genesis 12, the promise is given to Abraham and to his offspring. Then in chapter 16 of Genesis, just moving forward, Abraham has a biological son, biological offspring, Ishmael. That was Abraham's firstborn son. But we know that Ishmael was born through Hagar, not through Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham got impatient and um, made Ishmael with Hagar. <clears throat> so at this point, though, you have Ishmael. It's, it's Abraham's firstborn son. So Abraham would have believed that Ishmael 
was the offspring that God would pour out his covenant blessings on and continue this covenant through. But then, so that was chapter 16, but then in chapter 17 and in the following chapters, God makes it very plain that Ishmael will not be the child of this covenant promise. He will not. He will not receive it. Uh, If you want to look with me, again, mark that Romans because we'll be back. Go to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. I just want to make this very plain for you what Paul is pointing out. He knows that his readers would be very familiar uh, with with, uh, God's choosing of Isaac rather than Ishmael. But I want to show you Genesis 17 beginning in verse 15. Genesis 17 beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, listen to this, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty plain, right? Ishmael exists. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that he may be the recipient of this covenant blessing and, and that the, the blessing might, might be carried through him. And God says, no. You will have another son. His name will be Isaac. She will be through your wife, Sarah, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. If you uh, turn to uh, chapter 18, or just look over whatever it is on your page, chapter 18, verse 10. 18, verse 10, uh, Genesis. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's uh, what Paul quoted in in Romans 9, 9, is this idea that, hey, I'm really going to do this. This time next year, you're going to have this son, and he's the one that I'm going to bring this covenant through. Go to chapter 21 now. Chapter 21, verse 8. We see this play out. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 8. And the child, Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar. That's Ishmael. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And we said in our study here that this is not just a ha-ha-ha laughter. This was a laughter of scorn, a laughter of mockery. That's generally the way this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, is uh, she saw Ishmael mocking and scorning Isaac, the child of promise. Verse 10, So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, this is God now directing, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. She says, send Ishmael away. Sarah does. Send Ishmael away. He will not be heir alongside my son Isaac. Heir of what? Well, I mean, it'd be the family's wealth, but this is the, this promise, this blessing that will be passed down through the generations. He will not be heir with my son Isaac. And how does God respond to that? Do as Sarah says. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's what Paul quotes, by the way, in Romans 9, 7, in our our passage that we're studying today. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is pretty clear what what Paul is doing here. He's showing that that the, the word of God has not failed. And here's this first example as well. 
because in the first place, the very first generation after the word of God was given, after the promise was given, there was a distinction made. There was a choosing that took place. Isaac was chosen to receive the covenant blessings, and Ishmael was not. He was sent away with his mother. So that's the first example. Ishmael is cast away. Isaac is chosen to be the covenant recipient. The second example we have in verses 10 through 12. Paul gives this as another proof for the fact that the word of God has not failed. So Romans 9 verses 10 through 12, he says, And not only so, so not only was Isaac chosen over Ishmael, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, the children, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Do you see that exact same principle taking place here that, that we just saw with, uh, between Isaac and, and Ishmael? There's this understanding that, that it's Jacob and not Esau. The older, that's Jacob, will serve the younger. This again is now uh, the, the, the third generation after Abraham. These are descendants, direct descendants of Abraham. Not only that, they're, they're both children of Isaac. They're both born from the same mother. They're both twins. Jacob is actually the younger rather than the older. But God says the older will serve the younger. There's this choice taking place here by God. One will receive the covenant blessings and the other will not. Notice there it says the older will serve the younger. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a word of subservience. They will be subservient to you. They will be underneath the younger. Or he will be underneath the younger. I mean, it's just interesting stuff. I mean, you, you think about... Uh, what, what happens later in the life of Esau, okay? The older will serve the younger. Later in David's day, later in the history of Israel, David takes over the Edomites and they become uh, servants of Israel. Who are the Edomites? Those are Esau's descendants. Edom comes from, from uh, Esau. Those are his, his line. Israel came from, from Jacob. In fact, his name was changed to Israel. And the rest of Edom's history doesn't go so great. So they become subservient. But then look at what it said there uh, in Romans 9, 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a a direct quote from Malachi chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you're welcome. It's the last book of the Old Testament. But this is what it says. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. God says this. I have loved you. That's, I've loved you, Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? Now God's response is this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, again, Edom is Uh, Esau's descendants. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The point there is plain in Malachi and even uh, why Paul is using it uh, there in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Esau and his descendants were not the recipients of the covenant blessings. They, they, they did not receive uh, the, the blessings of the promise. But Isaac did. Or sorry, Jacob did. So we see these two examples here, right? Isaac and Ishmael. God chooses Isaac and Ishmael does not receive. Then we have uh, Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob and not not Esau. 
So Paul's point here in these examples is that God's word, God's promise had not failed to Israel because the promise was never intended to be for all Israel. It was only intended for the spiritual Israel, the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And the fact is, this had been happening for all of Israel's history, right? Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac, that's the first generation after Abraham, the one who was given the promise. Then the, the next generation is uh, Jacob and Esau, and, and one is chosen and one is not. All along, there were descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, who were not his spiritual descendants and were not receiving God's covenant promise. That's, that's what he's saying here. Now we need to look at this a little deeper though. Okay, so there were some who weren't receiving the promise. Isn't that the point that maybe God's word has failed? Maybe God is just unable to, to impart his, his blessings to, to Ishmael and to Esau. Maybe God is just too weak to save them. But what does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about why, why Jacob received the blessings and not Esau? He says there, verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It was no deficiency or, or inability on God's part that Esau didn't receive the, the covenant blessing. Rather, it was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. It wasn't because God was weak that only Jacob later responds to, to, to God. But it was because of him who calls. God called Jacob. This is an effectual calling. This is a, a calling that, that comes and, and it woos a person. It changes this sinful heart that cannot respond to God. Because of him who calls. That's why Jacob received the, the, the covenant blessing and Esau did not. God is in control of this. God is not uh, hands off the wheel hoping things go well. God isn't standing there, you know, wrenching his hands, saying, oh no, I hope, I hope Esau comes around. I hope Ishmael comes around. That, that's just not what we see. We see that God, because of him, uh, in order that his purpose of election might continue, the older shall serve the younger. That because of him who calls the older shall serve the younger. So God's word and promise did not fail. That's Paul's point. That's his thesis. The word of God has not failed. How can I prove that? Well, God has been electing people for salvation since the beginning. Since, since the promise was given to Abraham, God has been choosing some graciously. Choosing sinners who do not deserve any type of blessing, who do not deserve any type of salvation. God has been choosing them for salvation. But on the other hand, there have been those that he has not been choosing. You think of Ishmael, you think of Esau. They will rather get what they deserve. Whereas uh, Isaac and, and Jacob are blessed by God. They're, they're given this special grace. And this, this, is, this is crazy stuff. This is, this is crazy stuff, but we need to understand that there is a theological problem if election isn't true. If God can't save the Israelites. But the fact is, God was choosing and saving some. The promise was never intended for all. I don't want you to miss the significance of what I've just said. By the way, if you want to look at this further, Romans 11 verses 1 through 5 is another really good example of that exact same principle. That's about has God rejected his people? And Paul says no. Anyway, uh, it, it doesn't matter. So, I don't want you to miss the significance of this. There was an allegation 
that God may not have kept his word to Israel. There is an allegation, a thought in people's heads, that the word of God may have failed. This would have been an absolutely massive theological and practical problem for the Israelites. And the fact is, if it was a massive theological problem for them, then that means it's a massive problem for us. Because if God won't keep his word to his chosen people Israel, what's to make us think he'll keep his word to us? If God's word has failed, if God can't actually keep his promise, then why would we trust any of the promises that he has made to us? That's why this matters. That's why this is so significant. Think about it. God has made you promises that, that you're banking your life on. But if you can't trust God, if you don't know if you can, then, then how can you trust that there will be no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus? How can you trust that, that there's no condemnation awaiting you one day? How can you trust that God won't let you slip away from the faith? How can you trust that when you share the gospel, God really has the ability to change that person's heart and bring them into salvation? If he couldn't do it for the Israelites, I mean, why is he going to do it through my mouth, you know, uh, to these people? And how can you trust that God is really working all things together for good in your life? I mean, I've just listed some really, really important questions that if God's not faithful, it's a big problem. If I can't trust God, then my life uh, turns to, to a very nervous and fretful and, and maybe even wasted life. I don't know about you, but I'm banking on God to fulfill his promises. I'm doing my best not to hedge my bets and say, well, if he doesn't come through, it'll be okay. No, no, no. Faith says it's all you, God. I'm falling back on you. But what if we can't trust God? But as we've seen here from Paul that the doctrine of election is actually proof that God is keeping his word. God is keeping his promise. The promise was for spiritual Israel, spiritual uh, offspring of Abraham, and God was in full control. He was choosing who he would save and give this promise, uh, the blessings of this promise to. God was doing it. But what we may not realize is this. In the same way the doctrine of election upholds uh, this promise of God to, to Abraham, the doctrine of election actually upholds so many of the promises to you. This is number two in your notes, if you want to write it down. I'll, I'll work through this quickly. Election upholds the promises of God. This time it's plural. I know that's not very creative. The first one was election upholds the promise of God, that specific promise given to Abraham. This time, election upholds the promises of God. We're going to look at some promises that God has made to us that are upheld. They are buttressed. They are uh, uh, strengthened by this election of God. They're using, used as, as uh, proof that God will keep his promise. So I, I said some questions. How can you trust that? Right? So I'm going to answer those with election. How can you trust that? How can you trust that, that there is no condemnation awaiting you? If you're in Christ Jesus, how can you know that you will not one day face the wrath of God? You know, maybe he just said that, but, you, but you know, who knows? Romans 8.33, I'm going to blow through these verses. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's this idea. Who, who's to condemn you? Who's to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If you're elect, then you're, you're justified in God's eyes. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let me ask you, how can you possibly be holy and blameless before God? This isn't talking about sanctification. This isn't talking about so that God will clean you up. He chose you to clean you up. No, no, no. This is talking about God chose you in him before the foundation of the world that you might really one day stand before the great, great white throne of judgment and you will be holy 
and, and, and righteous, holy and blameless before God. Why? Because he chose you in him. That This is talking about imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is put on you. Why? Because he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. It goes on, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. So in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So how do we have that? How do we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses? Well, it says up there, in love he predestined us for it. You hear that? We we have these verses explicitly link election and full forgiveness together. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? God who justifies. You'll be holy and blameless before God because he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined you for redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses. The undergirding for being able to trust that you do not have condemnation is according to the Bible, this doctrine of election. You can believe it because you are chosen in him. Next question. How can you trust that God won't let you slip away? People will really struggle with this. How how can you know that you'll persevere to the end. You say, I believe in him now, but what about tomorrow? What about, the next, what about 10 years from now? How do I know that my faith will continue? I've got a bunch of them here. I'm going to rattle off, okay? These first two are Jesus. John 6, 35 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Interesting. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Assuredly, they will come to me, and I will never cast them out who have come to me by the, by the Father's grace. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. God is going to draw you this calling, right? And because of that calling, he will raise us up on the last day. Romans 8.30, excuse me. (coughs) Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also called glorified. That's known theologically as the unbreakable chain of predestination. God predestines, therefore he calls. He calls, therefore he justifies. He justifies, therefore he glorifies. All the way to the end. Uh, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who chose you. It is God who called you. It is God who gifted you with faith and repentance. And it is God who's going to keep you in that faith and repentance. Now, God will use means. You understand what I mean by that? God will, God will use people to, to, to share the gospel with you. He absolutely will. God will use terrible circumstances in your life or great circumstances in your life to draw you to him. Then, then once you have believed and trusted in him, he will then use things like community to keep us in the faith. I need you people because God has placed you in my life to keep me in the faith, to rebuke me when I'm in sin, to encourage me to keep pushing on in my faith. God uses means, but God is behind it all. God gives us his word. God, just so many other means God uses, but it's all God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This sovereignty of God, this election of God, is how we can know we will make it to the end if we have trusted in Christ Jesus. Next question. How can you trust that when you share the gospel, God really has the ability to change a person's heart and bring them to salvation? I mean, we have this, this, this doctrine of, of depravity, right? These people are so depraved 
we can't even spiritually respond to God. So what's the point of me sharing the gospel with this person? Or, or maybe this person that, that's in front of me that I'm feeling I should share the gospel with, they maybe are so bad, they're so deluded that it would just be pointless for me to share the gospel with them. What's the point of sharing the gospel? Acts 13, 48 and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Interesting. It doesn't just say, and then some people believed because they were more rational, they were more faithful. No, no. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. Election. <laughs> Appointing. It was, was what buttressed them sharing the gospel and people believing. I've got so many more examples. Acts 18, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. <clears throat> for no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was so convinced of this doctrine of election. God was so convinced, uh, or Paul was so convinced that, that God really could save people. Because God says here, I have many in this city who are my people. Another way of saying that, I have many elect not yet saved people in this city. And so what does Paul do? He stays there another year and a half preaching God's word. Because he said, you know what? There are people here who God has chosen and God has the power to save them, to change their sinful hearts and to give them this eternal life. Final example here, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God appointed Paul, God appointed Apollos as ministers of the gospel. And Paul says, but we were mere tools in God's hands, servants. It was really him who was giving the growth. The only reason I can stand up here and preach the gospel, the only reason I can go on the street and talk to people, the only reason I can uh, you know, share the gospel with friends and family is because I believe God can really change the heart. Do I know who's elect? No, that's not my business. I can pray for it. I can pray God save them, and I can share the gospel with them. And I know that God has the power to save them through a weak servant like me. <clears throat> and I finally said, how can you trust that God is really working all things together for good in your life? That's a big question. If, if all the troubles and trials I have faced in my life uh, were for nothing, if they're purposeless, I, mean, I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of annoying. <laughs> like Life has not been easy. It has been hope-filled, or hope-filling, I guess, Hope-filling, it has been encouraging to me to know that whatever situation comes in my life, God is using it for good. In the same way for you, you can bear a burden a lot easier if you know this burden has a purpose. God is using it. But how do we know that God is really doing that? Romans, or sorry, first I'll look at uh, Ephesians 1.11. <clears throat> in him we have in, obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He says, you've been predestined by this one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now more explicitly, and you probably saw this verse coming, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here it is. For those who are called according to his purpose. It is the elect that God is working all things together for good for. And, and this reality of election upholds the fact that all things are working together for good. 
Do you have to believe in, in the doctrine of election to be saved? No, you don't. Do you have to agree with me in my interpretation? No, you don't. Will, will I push you out of the church? Will I let people uh, you know, ostracize you in any way? No, I will not. But I will tell you, this doctrine of election does mean a lot to me because it upholds the promises of God. It tells me that God is so gracious that he takes and chooses a sinner, a, a less than worthless sinner, a rebellious sinner, and he changes my heart, he calls me, he woos me, and he saves me. We can trust the promises of God. Paul made that point clear in Romans 9 that God's word had not failed to Israel because of election. And God, I hope through these verses I've just shown you, that all these other promises, amazing promises, are true. And we can trust God because of this evidence of the doctrine of election. Friends, you should not be frantic people. You should not be uh, continually troubled people to the point of despair. Because God is in complete control. God has made promises and he fulfills them. God sets his purpose and plan and he carries it out. We have seen the faithfulness of God today, even in this doctrine of election. I'm not saying that I've answered every question or every mystery today. I'm not even telling you I understand every mystery of this doctrine of election. But I'm, I'm telling you that in this context, even using Jacob and Esau that we're studying in Genesis 25, God says this doctrine of election, this example of Jacob and Esau, actually upholds my truthfulness to my promises. And I ask that you would join me in praying today that, that God would continue to open our eyes to his trustworthiness and to the beauty of even these doctrines that we don't quite understand every aspect of. <clears throat> Let's pray.